Chapter Three of Fifty Years a Detective: Thirty-Five Real Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Fifty Years a Detective: Thirty-Five Real Detective Stories by Thomas Furlong. The Preller Murder Case, Part One. True statement as to how the evidence which hung Maxwell was obtained, published for the first time. The Preller murder occurred in the summer of 1885 in one of the rooms of the Southern Hotel, St. Louis, Missouri. Clarence Preller was a young Englishman, as was also his slayer, Hugh M. Brooks. The discovery of the body, the apprehension of the murderer, his trial and execution, attracted the attention of the civilised world. The true story of the conviction of the perpetrator of this foul crime has never before been published. Hugh M. Brooks was a native of Hyde Park, a suburb of London, England. His father and mother were respectable people and school teachers by professions. The young man was about 25 or 6 years of age when he committed this crime. He had never done anything but go to school consequently was well educated. The last school he attended was a law school. He ran away from this institution after stealing a lot of property that belonged to fellow students. The plunder he secured consisted mostly of ornaments and bric-a-brac which he pawned at Liverpool, England, to secure enough money with which to purchase a first-class ticket to Boston, Massachusetts. After boarding the vessel, he met and formed the acquaintance of Clarence Preller. Preller was a trusted employee of a large export establishment of London. His duties required him to travel nearly all over the world, or at least to visit the principal cities of the world. He was a young man, being about 30 years of age, and finding Brooks, a fellow countryman, an agreeable companion, took very kindly to him. Brooks represented himself as being a titled nobleman who had just finished his course at college and was making a pleasure tour of America. He called himself Maxwell. During the voyage from Liverpool to Boston, Preller told Maxwell, as I will call him hereafter, that after he had attended to a matter of business for his firm at Boston, he had to go to Toronto, Canada, where he would be detained but a day or two. Then he would leave Toronto for St. Louis, Missouri, where he also had some business to do for his firm, which would require but a short time, and that from there he would go through to San Francisco, California, and sail from there on the first steamship to Auckland, New Zealand. Maxwell told him that he believed he would go from Boston to St. Louis, where he, Maxwell, would await the arrival of Preller from Toronto then accompany him to Auckland just for the trip. This proposition pleased Preller. They arrived safely in Boston, where they remained two or three days together, and where Maxwell learned that Preller had in his possession seven $100 bills. After Preller had finished his business in Boston, they settled their bills at the Adams house where they had stopped, went to the depot together, and separated, Preller going to Toronto, and Maxwell to St. Louis. They had agreed that Maxwell was to stop at the Southern Hotel in St. Louis, there to await Preller. 
Maxwell arrived at that hotel and engaged a room, where Preller joined him a couple of days later. I think it was Saturday when he arrived, and they occupied the same apartments. On the following Sunday, after they had eaten their dinner and returned to their room, Preller complained of suffering from stomach trouble. Maxwell claimed to have some knowledge of medicine and administered an overdose of morphia hypodermically. A short time after administering the drug, and when he saw that Preller was beginning to breathe his last, he poured more than half the contents of a four-ounce bottle of chloroform into Preller's almost lifeless lips. When Preller was dead, Maxwell stripped the body and placed a suit of his own underwear on him. Maxwell was small in stature, being only about five feet five inches in height, while Preller was much larger and about six feet tall. Maxwell's clothing was marked with the name of Hugh M. Brooks, and they were entirely too small for the body of Preller. In removing the underwear, Maxwell used a candle snuffer, which is very much like a pair of scissors, only the cutting surface had a half circle. He cut the undergarments the full length of the limbs so that he could easily strip them off. Then he managed to pull his own garments on the body. He emptied out the trunk belonging to Preller and pressed the body into it. He had to almost double it into a circle to get it into the trunk, but he succeeded. Then, strapping and locking the trunk, he put his own, as well as Preller's, effects into his own trunk and retired for the night. The next morning, after breakfast, he called at the cashier's office, settled his bill, and stated to the clerk that his friend Preller had been obliged to make a short run out of town and would be back to the hotel in two or three days, and desired that the room be held for him, as his trunk and effects would remain there until he called for them. Maxwell explained that he had to leave that morning, and expected his friend Preller to join him later. He instructed the head porter to bring his large trunk down into the corridor, the one he had ordered brought down contained the dead body, but to his consternation, the porter brought down the one in which his and Preller's effects had been packed. He became very much alarmed and had his trunk taken to Union Station and checked to San Francisco, buying a ticket for that place. He departed over the Frisco Road and arrived in San Francisco, where he remained one night, and the following day bought a ticket for Auckland, New Zealand, and sailed that afternoon. The weather was quite warm in St. Louis, and after a few days, decomposition set in upon the corpse in the trunk. The odour from the room attracted the attention of the servants. They reported to the office, the room was entered, and the body found. The police were notified at once. A good description of Maxwell was furnished by the hotel people, and telegrams were sent in all directions, giving this description and requesting Maxwell's arrest. Captain Leas, chief of police of San Francisco, received one of these telegrams, started his detectives to investigate, and succeeded in learning that the murderer had sailed for Auckland some three or four days before he had received the telegraphic description of him from St. Louis. Whereupon, Chief Leas cabled the proper authorities of Auckland a full description of Maxwell, and even the number of the stateroom he occupied on the ship. Of course, Captain Leas's telegram reached Auckland several days before the ship arrived. 
When the ship arrived at Auckland, the police sent out two of their detectives with the pilot, who was to guide the steamer on which Maxwell had taken passage, into port. They arrested him as soon as they boarded the ship, and when the vessel landed, immediately notified the St. Louis authorities, in accordance with Captain Leas's instructions to them. After obtaining proper extradition papers, the chief of police of St. Louis sent two of his detectives to Auckland to bring Maxwell back to St. Louis. They went to Auckland by way of San Francisco, found Maxwell in jail there, and brought him back to St. Louis. It was a long and expensive trip, and cost the city of St. Louis a great deal of money. On arriving in St. Louis, the prisoner was locked up without bail on the charge of murdering Preller. He immediately employed two lawyers to defend him. After having consulted with his lawyers, Maxwell became jubilant, so much so that he became obnoxious to his fellow prisoners. He was naturally inclined to be overbearing and seemed to hold himself aloof from the other prisoners. He was rather inclined to braggadocio and attracted a lot of attention. The daily papers devoted a great deal of space to him, which he seemed to enjoy immensely. In fact, the notoriety appeared to be very pleasing to him. A few days after he had been lodged in jail in St. Louis, Ashley C. Clover, circuit attorney of St. Louis, in company with Marshall F. MacDonald, assistant circuit attorney, drove out to my residence one night. I was then chief special agent for the Missouri Pacific Railroad Company, and both Messrs. Clover and MacDonald were personal friends of mine. Mr. Clover stated that the object of their visit was in reference to the Maxwell case. He went on to state that, although the arrest and returning of Maxwell from Auckland to St. Louis had cost the city of St. Louis a great deal of money, and the case had become one of international importance, yet he did not believe that the officers of the St. Louis Police Department had made any efforts to get at the real facts in the case. So far they had not found enough evidence to procure a conviction in case the defendant went on the stand and testified that the giving of too much chloroform to Preller was an accident. Mr. Clover said that he wanted the real facts in the case, for, he said, while there is scarcely any doubt that Maxwell caused the death of Preller by an overdose of chloroform, yet he may have done it innocently, and if such is the case, under our laws, he could not be convicted of the murder, and ought not to be, in my opinion. But on the contrary, if he dosed him purposely and feloniously, with forethought and malice, he ought to be convicted. If he did it innocently, and I could be assured of that, I would be pleased to ask the jury to acquit him. But, as I said before, if he is guilty, it would be my duty as circuit attorney to insist on his conviction. And now, Tom, I want you to get the facts in this case for me. To which I replied, Mr. Clover, I really do not know anything about this case, except what I have read in the newspapers. And, of course, you know as well as I do that a man cannot base much of an opinion on a case of this kind on newspaper accounts. And, therefore, I wish you would give me a little time to think the matter over. I fully approve of the sentiments that you have expressed in connection with the case, and will be glad, indeed, to do all in my power to assist you. Both gentlemen said they wished that I would take the matter under advisement until the following evening at eight o'clock, 
at which time they would again call at my house to talk the matter over with me the following evening at the appointed time they called and were both apparently anxious to learn what i thought i could do in the way of obtaining the facts pertaining to the case after the usual greeting and when both had been seated i said gentlemen i have been thinking about the case in question and have become satisfied that there were but two people who knew the whole facts connected with the case and the facts that you now desire to know one of these persons is now in jail and the other is dead in my opinion maxwell is the only living person who knows the facts and therefore he is the only person from whom these facts can be obtained i believe i can get those facts from him but i want you gentlemen to understand that i am in the employ of the missouri pacific railroad company and of course they are paying me for all my time but if i were not in their employ i could not do this myself on account of my being so well known for that reason it would be necessary for me to select a competent operative to do this work under my instructions i shall be glad to do this or anything else that i can do to assist you in unravelling this case with the understanding that i am not to receive any compensation for what i may do myself but i shall expect you gentlemen to pay the operative that i may use in this work the same amount of salary that we are paying him and his actual expenses as i said before i will do all that i can but will neither expect nor receive any remuneration for my services tom replied mr clover there is no fund provided by the city for the employment of outside talent for such work as this in question but i expect to pay the expense out of my own pocket and i shall insist on paying you for your services in connection with this matter i answered i will receive nothing for any work that i may do in the matter at this point in the conversation mr macdonald who had been sitting quietly listening to mr clover and myself said tom how do you expect to obtain the facts in this case that's what i would like to know mr macdonald i responded i feel that it would be easier for me to go ahead and do this work than it would be for me to undertake to tell you how i propose to do it mr clover then said tom i am going to place this matter in your hands i want you to go ahead and get this thing started as soon as possible as the defendant's attorneys are clamouring for a speedy trial and i do not wish to keep them waiting any longer than i can help you do this work in your own way and i will pay the bills i said all right the next day i telegraphed to philadelphia to an operative in my employ there he was an entire stranger in st louis i wired him to come at once and not to stop at my office but to come direct to my house on his arrival in the city which he did his name was john mcculloch he was about thirty-five years of age about five feet ten inches in height and weighed about two hundred pounds he was well built had a sandy complexion and was rather a good-looking fellow he was wearing side whiskers or burn sides as they were called and a blonde moustache and looked very much like an englishman he was truthful and honest and of sober habits but a little thick-headed or in other words dull of comprehension in instructing him it was necessary to explain each detail fully 
and sometimes it would seem as if it were necessary to take a hammer and pound the instructions into his head but when he once understood thoroughly what you wanted him to do he would carry out instructions to the letter right here it might be well to take the reader into my confidence i had decided to get my operative mcculloch into jail where he could meet maxwell without the knowledge of the local police officers after explaining the nature of the case to him i instructed him to procure the leading daily papers of st louis dating back to the time of the murder and to read every line that had been published relative to the case this he did and it took him about three weeks i met him each evening during the time and rehearsed with him what i wanted him to do from the time he was arrested and how he should act after his arrest and incarceration early in february eighteen eighty six i succeeded in getting possession of a few blank cheques from the office of d s h smith who was local treasurer of the missouri pacific railroad company in st louis being chief special agent of the road i had occasion to visit the local treasurer's office frequently and being well known not only to the local treasurer but to all of his office force as well i had no difficulty in obtaining the blank cheques without the knowledge of dr smith as the local treasurer was called by most of the people who knew him or any of his clerks my chief clerk was a good penman and was familiar with the signature of dr d s h smith i had him practice for some time on imitating dr smith's signature and found that he could imitate it so clearly that it would have been accepted as genuine by any bank teller while i wanted a fairly good imitation of the signature i did not want it to be so good that it would be received at the bank after practising for a time he succeeded in making a signature which i thought would answer my purpose i had him fill out one of the blank cheques for the amount of one thousand one hundred and eighty eight dollars and ten cents i then gave this cheque to mcculloch with instructions to him to present it to the paying teller of the mechanics bank which was then on fourth street he was to present this cheque at nine forty five sharp the following morning i had received a cheque a day or two before this which bore the signature of dr smith and had purposely held this out and was waiting across the street from the bank when i saw mcculloch whom i will hereafter call frank dingfelter as this was the name he assumed and was the name to which the cheque had been made payable on entering the bank dingfelter went to the window of the paying teller mr warner and presented the cheque warner examined the cheque very carefully and by reason of its being for so large an amount and dingfelter being an entire stranger to him i having allowed dingfelter time enough to have reached the paying teller's window entered the bank with my cheque in my hand held the cheque that dingfelter had presented and when he saw me he excitedly motioned to me to come to his window on reaching the window warner commanded me in an excited manner to arrest that man pointing to dingfelter i said what do you want him arrested for warner holding up the cheque said why he has presented a large fake cheque bearing the name of dr smith for nearly twelve hundred dollars why you know dr smith's signature i replied yes here is one of dr smith's cheques i know this is genuine for i saw the doctor sign it he compared the fake cheque with mine and i said to mr warner 
while I am not an expert on handwriting, I do not believe that Dr. Smith wrote that signature. Mr. Warner exclaimed, I am positive he did not. Then, turning to Mr. Dingfelter, I asked, Where did you get this cheque? I got it from Dr. Smith, was his reply. Does Dr. Smith know you? I asked. In rather a gruff manner, he answered, Yes, he knows me. Will you go with me and see Dr. Smith? I asked. Well, I do not know whether I will or not. I don't know who you are, he replied. Whereupon, I laid my hand on his shoulder and said, You will either accompany me to Dr. Smith's office, or I will send for a patrol wagon, take you to police headquarters, and have you locked up. Are you an officer? he asked. To which I replied, Yes, I am Chief Special Agent of the Missouri Pacific Railroad Company. Oh, well, said he, that is different. I will go with you and see Dr. Smith. It was drizzling rain the morning of this occurrence, was quite chilly, and the streets and sidewalks were wet and slippery and dirty, as the streets of St. Louis were not kept as clean at that time as they are now. I took the fake cheque, and Dingfelter and myself started for Dr. Smith's office, which at that time was in the Missouri Pacific General Office Building on the corner of Sixth and Locust Streets. We walked west on Pine from Fourth. When we reached the corner of Sixth and Pine Streets, I gave Dingfelter a signal which had been prearranged. This signal was for him to hit me a good stiff punch, as the fighters call it. There was a large, clumsy patrolman wearing a raincoat standing under an awning near the corner saloon. I was walking on the left-hand side of Dingfelter, and when I gave him the signal, he cut loose with his right hand, which landed just over my right eye and a little back of it. I had instructed him to hit me hard, and if he succeeded in knocking me down, and I became groggy from the blow, he was to stumble and fall himself, so as to give the big, clumsy police officer time to reach us. The officer was standing about ten feet from us when Dingfelter struck me, but I knew how slow he was, and I wanted to be sure and give him an opportunity of getting hold of Dingfelter. I went down all right, and in fact was a little dazed from the effects of the blow. Dingfelter stumbled and fell, and the policeman made a dash, such as a heavily loaded ice wagon going uphill would make, and succeeded in reaching him, not, however, until he had risen, and I also had got to my feet. He got to Dingfelter about the same time that I did. The latter made a good fight, and tore off most of the uniform of the policeman, and my coat, vest, and collar. All of us went down in the street, and rolled around in the mud. Our ears and faces were filled with mud, before we finally succeeded in subduing Dingfelter. But I am satisfied, if he had tried his best, he could have gotten away with both of us, as he was a powerful man. My office was on 8th Street, just north of Pine, and this fight occurred just two blocks from my office. And after we had subdued Dingfelter, I suggested that we take him there, so as to give us an opportunity of washing ourselves while we were waiting for a patrol wagon to take the prisoner to headquarters. This we did and on arriving at my office, we turned the prisoner over to my chief clerk and one of my operatives who happened to be there, while the policeman and myself began digging the mud out of our ears and washing our faces. 
After washing, I found that my right eye was very much discoloured, and where my face had come in contact with the pavement, there were a number of small cuts and scratches, which were somewhat inflamed, and I really had a sore face. The operative who I have mentioned before, whose name was Phillips, on seeing my face, said to me, Why, you sure ought to go and see a doctor at once. Your eye is in bad shape, and you need medical attention immediately. Let me go up to police headquarters with this fellow. I can attend to the matter for you. I thanked him, and said that I wished he would do so. I told him what had occurred at the bank, and instructed him to make a complaint against Dingfelter accordingly. In due time the patrol wagon arrived, and the police officer and Phillips escorted Mr. Dingfelter to police headquarters. At this time, Huey O'Neill was chief of detectives, and Major Lawrence Harrigan was chief of police for the city of St. Louis. As soon as Dingfelter was hustled into the detective's office in the four courts, Chief O'Neill and a squad of his men immediately set about searching him. They found in one of his inside pockets a letter, addressed, sealed and stamped, but apparently which Dingfelter had forgotten to mail. It was directed to San Francisco. They also found about seventy-five or one hundred dollars and some other articles, all of which were taken from him and placed in the police department archives for safekeeping. The letter was eagerly opened and read. This letter was quite lengthy and was just such a letter as one crook would write to another. There was then, and had been for some time previous, a gang of bank swindlers working the cities of the Pacific coast, and the newspapers had been printing a great deal about the operations of this gang several weeks prior to the time of which I write. And for this reason, the detectives of St. Louis were led to believe, by the finding of the letter, that they had struck something which might lead to the capture of the bank swindlers. The contents of the letter appeared in the afternoon papers. Some of these papers censured me for having failed to discover this letter. After reading the comments of the papers regarding this letter, I would have considered myself very stupid indeed for having missed the letter, were it not for the fact that I knew that I had not had an opportunity to search Mr. Dingfelter up to the time he assaulted me and the officer on Pine Street, and then I also knew it had taken me about two hours to compose and dictate that same letter. Dingfelter was locked up, of course, and the time was set for his preliminary hearing to be several days later. In the meantime, the St. Louis papers were devoting lots of space to Dingfelter and his alleged crime, a relief to the newspaper readers, as they had begun to grow tired of reading day after day about Maxwell and what his attorneys expected to do for him. From the time of Dingfelter's arrest up to the time of Maxwell's trial, the newspapers scarcely mentioned the latter's name. Some of them occasionally mentioned my name, in rather a joking manner, because I had been stupid enough to miss that letter. When Dingfelter was called for his preliminary hearing, he was promptly remanded to jail to await the action of the grand jury. He was besieged by lawyers who were anxious to defend him, but he declined their offers, telling them, when the time came, he had lawyers selected to defend him and steadfastly refused to divulge their names. 
The second day after his arrest, Dingfelter was allowed to mingle with the other prisoners in what was called the bull ring. An allotted time is given to the prisoners each day in this place for exercise. Maxwell noticed that almost immediately after his arrest, the newspapers were giving Dingfelter all the notoriety and had dropped himself. So he hastened to make the acquaintance of one so notorious when they met in the bull ring. This was the only opportunity of meeting him, and from the first time that Maxwell saw Dingfelter, he never lost an opportunity of talking with him, and he stuck to Dingfelter like the proverbial fly to the horse. The first time Maxwell approached Dingfelter, he rushed up to him and said, You are Dingfelter, I believe. Dingfelter replied that he was, and Maxwell then said, They seem to have a strong case against you. You will have to excuse me, sir. I don't want to be considered impolite, Dingfelter replied, but I must decline to talk to anyone in this place about my case, as you call it. I don't believe it would be a good thing for me or any other person to talk about a charge that is pending against them in a place of this kind. I shall be glad to talk with you on any other subject, however, but I trust that you will hereafter refrain from asking me any questions regarding the charge now pending against me in court, and then I don't know you. Maxwell hastily said, Oh, I am Maxwell. I am the fellow who is charged with the murder of that man Preller, who was killed in the Southern Hotel, and whose body was found in a trunk. I was arrested at Auckland, New Zealand, and brought back here to St. Louis to stand trial. But I have been assured by my attorneys that I will be acquitted. They have no proof against me, and just as soon as I can get a trial, why, of course, I will go free. So you are Maxwell, said Dingfelter. I have been reading in the papers about you, and if you will pardon me for saying it, it seems to me that you have already been talking too much about your case. If you are not guilty of the crime with which you stand charged, why, you ought to be acquitted, and I hope you will be. After this first interview between Maxwell and Dingfelter, he and many other prisoners looked upon Dingfelter as being a wise and unusually smart prisoner. Dingfelter was in jail 47 days, and during all that time, Maxwell never let an opportunity pass without talking to him. I received daily reports from my operative, a task which I found very difficult, and it became more difficult by reason of the Southwestern Railroad strike, which broke out on March the 4th, 1886, and continued during Dingfelter's stay in the St. Louis jail. Being chief special agent for the Gould system, my time was occupied in protecting the railroad company's property and in apprehending people who were continually committing illegal acts. I was occupied almost day and night in this work. End of chapter 3